We come now to the book of Hebrews. We uh, do serial expository preaching in this church. The, your senior pastor and I each keep a book open for the early, uh, for the morning service and for the evening. And so we occasionally come back to the book of Hebrews, therefore, and we're almost through. We're looking at chapter 12 this morning, and then we'll have uh, just one more to go. Hebrews chapter 12. This is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have, have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, an earthly, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines for our own good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be pulled out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who, is, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." For you have not come to what may be touched, the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. May God bless that reading of his word to us. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask that you would bless us now as we gather around your word. You have sent it by inspiration of your Holy Spirit of old. You have preserved it down through the centuries that we might have it here before us And yet we need also your great ministry that your Holy Spirit would illumine this word and shine it into our hearts and lives and show us how to live, giving us the grace and strength of Christ-likeness. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series of the book of Hebrews, we have previously toured what is called the Great Hall of Faith. By faith... Abel and Enoch and Noah. By faith, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. By faith, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, and many others whose names were not given. They all, by faith, followed the Lord. And as is common in most of the epistles, we now turn the page, we turn the chapter And no longer are we dealing with detailed, exegetical, broad, sweet matters. We now come to practical Christian living. We've moved from doctrine down to where rubber meets the road. And we have very clear pieces of pastoral advice and ethical admonition for Christian living. And so it's time for us to draw the great conclusion from our visit to the great hall of faith. And here the author of the epistle to the Hebrews teaches us that we as believers should look and think and listen, living to God's glory. Look and think and listen. Well, the chapter begins by telling us to open our eyes and to look to Jesus. You see, he tells us that our Christian life is a race. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so the analogy or illustration is given of life as a race and particularly as our Christian life as a race. And there are things that would distract us or entangle us and we are called to lay them aside. Anything that would get us distracted or would hold us back, we are to set them aside that we might run the race swiftly. Now, if we're getting ready for a marathon, we might take our coat off. We, we might make sure that we had on just the right kind of shoes. We, we might remove the, the training weights that we had been practicing with from around our ankles. We would remove all these encumbrances so that we might run and win. But the inspired author here is telling us that it's not just about a race per se with weights around our ankles. It's, it's life the Christian life, being like a race. And so it's not weights that we remove, but it's the sin which grows up in our life and, and, and grabs us and holds us back and holds us down. We must untangle these things from us. And there are direct and strong commands that are given us in this text which we must work hard at doing. Not that we earn our salvation by doing them, but because we've been saved by Jesus Christ, because we've been washed in His blood, because He has given us faith, and we have been able by His grace to trust in Him, we now are called to lift our drooping hand, to strengthen our weak knees, to make straight paths for our feet. We must strive. We must work. We must labor to the glory of God. These are all things that we are called to do. It's not that we get saved and just kind of merrily and in a happy-go-lucky fashion wander down the path of life. We're running a race, and we must run it without entanglement. We also must run it with endurance. The author here is reminding us of our visit to the great hall of faith and the fact that there is a is an entire audience which is watching, that there's a cloud of witnesses, and we are to not forget them, but remember that we run in front of them. We run not singly, but rather in a great marathon with a number too many for any man to number. That is in the body of Christ. We run that race which the Lord has set out, and we have the blessing and benefit of other saints around us, and other saints that have come before us, and they now stand and they watch and they listen for the work of God in our lives that they might welcome us at the victory circle at the very throne of heaven. Oh, we are to run without entanglement and with endurance this race that God has set before us. And we also must run with our eyes fixed on the ultimate point and goal as well as source, who is Jesus Christ himself. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, he tells us in verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We run the race watching Jesus, making sure that by watching him, we're running in the right direction all the time. Is he not the author of our faith? 
He's the founder. He, he is the one who first gave us faith. He, he died for us. He, he won gifts uh, by his heavenly father, rewarded for his victory and carrying out of the great covenant of redemption. And so now he gives gifts to men, to you and to me. How is it that you ever first came to trust in the Lord and to find salvation in him? It's, it's only by a faith which is foreign, which is from outside of you. Faith is a gift, lest any man should boast, Paul tells us. And so the source of our salvation is in Christ, not only in the accomplishment of it on the cross, but also in the application of it. He pours out his Holy Spirit, and we are given great and wonderful gifts like faith. And not only does he give us saving faith, he actually also perfects it. He continues working in your life. Each step of the way, as you get closer to the goal, he he gives you all that you need for Christian living. And he fits you for heaven and helps make you ready to live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. Oh, we run looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we know that he is our great example. We run by His grace and strength. We run because He calls us, but we also run looking to Him, remembering and being mindful of how He first ran before us. He is the one who we must consider, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, he himself kept his eye on the prize. Upon the prize of victory in keeping the covenant of redemption. He himself kept his eye on the glory of his heavenly father. Of loving and providing for his bride, the church, who was in such need of salvation and of caring for her even by his own sacrifice. Men were evil towards him. They, they stripped him bare. They hung him up, nailed to a tree. They treated him in a heartbreaking and scandalous way. And yet he despised that shame. He put it behind him. He counted it as nothing. He hated it because of his love of God. And his love of you, believer. And so he indeed is our great example. He is the one who has run the race so swiftly and so faithfully and surely. He is enthroned above now for us. And as we run, he himself watches and roots and aids and abets and encourages and gives you all that you need. When you feel the least able to run, He is caring for you most, more than you ever understand. And so we are called to run like Jesus. We run like Him, considering Him who endured such hostility from sinners. We think about Him. Our mind and our hearts dwell upon Him. We hear the upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that we are not to grow weary, we are not to lose heart, we do not collapse and quit in the heat of the day. 
we continue on and seek to strain every nerve to be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, you should look to Jesus. Open your eyes and look to Him. And the author here tells us we also need to think. We need to engage our minds and we need to think of our Heavenly Father, even as Jesus did. We read this beginning in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Here the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is is reminding us that our heavenly father is indeed a father to us because he cares for us. And we should think of him. We should remember that he's our heavenly father. And so that he is the one who takes us through not a smooth and easy path, but a difficult one with uphill climbs, we face the endurance that discipline brings because of the call and the will of God. It's not church discipline per se here that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is talking about. He is talking about the godliness of discipline. That is, the discipline of godliness that comes in the crucible of life. God is the God of providence and He unfolds our days. What you face today, I I do not know in, in all of your cases. And what you will face and I will face tomorrow, none of us know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God and the things revealed belong to us and, and to our children forever. We do not know what tomorrow holds, but we do know that God, our Heavenly Father, is the one who holds it. And He does not require a path for us more difficult than we can run. Yes, there are stones and and thorns and thistles along the way. Yes, it is the heat of the day that we sometimes encounter and the heartbreak of tragedy and disappointment. But in all these things, God proves His fatherhood to us because He disciplines us. He chastises us. He humbles us that we might go from strength to strength, that we might be shaped and molded into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, there is one of my children who will remain nameless, who many years ago spoke in a way to her father which made it fairly plain that that discipline was unpleasant. Daddy! You don't love me. You're making me sad. Uh, This was the response to uh, a little fatherly chastisement and discipline. And it's true. Discipline can... It cannot feel so great. It it can disappoint. It it can make us withdraw. It can can make our face grow long. and, And we can think that our Heavenly Father doesn't love us. But as is true with our children, so is 
true with the children of our Heavenly Father, those He loves, He disciplines. The fact that He puts you in the crucible is not evidence of His hatred and rejection of you, child of God. It rather is evidence of His love and of His passion and concern for you. And that He is so concerned that you develop the gold and the silver and the jewels of Christ's likeness that He is even willing to see you go into the crucible and into the furnace for a while that you might come out shining to His glory. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, who is good, our Lord says. But yet in Christ we are good if we trust in Him. And the remaining residual dross of saints who are also sinners this side of our Lord's return, it is burned off in the crucible as we face the heat of the day. And the Lord means it for our good and for His glory. Oh, He trains us. That which is unpleasant makes us stronger. They say that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I can remember as a child feeling just that way. You see, Coach Johnson, he made us do uh, these jumping jack things. And, and that was okay once you figured out how to coordinate your feet with your arms. And then you were humbled. He had you fall to the ground. And, and there seemed to be some idea that whoever fell the fastest and the hardest was the most manly. And then you had to do these push-ups. And you know, those can strain the arms. And, and then there were the accursed sit-ups. No, no man on the team liked those at all. But then came the worst part. After they had exhausted you and wrung every ounce of energy out of your body, he would then point, point off across the field to a fence on the other side of the galaxy, so it seemed. And you were to run and touch the fence and come back. Uh, there was no water. There was no way station until you got back from that trip into the far country. It was uh, a singularly unpleasant thing in a South Carolina 110 degree day. But it was good for us. We won more games. We were made stronger. Even though the next day we could hardly walk to class, God, in the same way, uses the path of this life, the obstacle course of life that He lays out for us, to train us and to develop us into more righteousness in Christ-likeness. Because you see, the gift and blessing of Christ-likeness is well worth the cost. You will one day, my friend, if you trust in Christ, you will one day sit on the port, porch of your mansion sipping some sort of new heaven and new earth equivalent to sweet tea. And you will look out over the horizon and you will say, it was good for my soul. God intends to develop holiness in us that we might share His holiness, He says in verse 10. And we also need to remember that we do not run alone. And so we have a responsibility and a, and a reason of care and concern one for another we must care for one another as we run this race and as we go through trials because together we are the body of, the, of Christ. And, and if the arm has an injury, the foot cannot say, I don't care. 
We are all together part of one body. And so, according to verse 12, the strong must help the weak. Yes, we must lift drooping hands and, and we must strengthen weak knees, but there's a corporate aspect to all of this as well. We must make straight paths for our feet. We must seek to be healed. And in the next breath, he speaks of our living one with another. Strive for peace with everyone. Now, why in the world would someone under inspiration of the Holy Spirit need to tell good Christian people to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Why would he need to say such a thing? Well, because members of the body of Christ down through the centuries have have looked sort of like the person sitting next to you in the pew and have sort of looked like the person that stared back at you in the mirror this morning. We are sinners saved by grace. And so we, this side of the Lord's return, need to be told and admonished and encouraged to strive for peace. And that means sometimes life's not so peaceful. And that means, you see, sometimes our own lives are not just a trip to the spiritual sauna where all is wonderful and light. Oh, no, we live in the crucible. We need to work at and encourage one another that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble because, you see, that spreads like gangrene and it harms the whole of the body. He lists off particularly sexual immorality and the unholiness of Esau, who for momentary pleasure and gain sold his birthright. Oh, we need to pursue peace and sanctification rather than bitterness as we walk and we watch others walk and help them walk as well. So we must look to Jesus We must think of God, our Heavenly Father, and the course that He's laid out. And we must also open our ears and we must listen to the Holy Spirit. The balance of the chapter from verse 18 to the end talks about Sinai, Mount Sinai on the one hand and Mount Zion on the other. You see, the initial word to Israel from God, the initial revelation came from Mount Sinai. And that's what's being talked about in those verses. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What is all this about? Well, it's back in the Old Testament. It's the physical mountain that the children of Israel taken out of Egypt across through the Red Sea on dry ground, they were taken to Mount Sinai and there they camped. And God chose to meet them in that place and teach them lessons about the Christian life. They needed to learn of their need of a Savior. They needed to learn the Ten Commandments. He, He had already given to them Ten Commandments, having written them on their hearts when he made them because we're made in the image of God. But here he carved them with his own finger, as it were, into tablets of stone. They were given to Moses and he brought them down the mountain. 
And the scene is one which is very dramatic and apocalyptic. It, it is to bring to our minds what the end time judgment will be like. It is a scary scene. God dwells in active, visible, and frightening presence in that place at that time. The mountain, we are told in verse 20, was holy and consecrated. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. You see, if one of their sheep or goats got out of the herd and went wandering up to the mountain, that mountain was holy. It was set apart by God for a holy use. And that sheep or goat must be stoned. If a person broke out from the camp and started running up a mountain, if God didn't strike them dead first, the people of God should have stoned them until they died. I got news for you. If the Rankin household had been there, we would have been holding on to Little Dog with two hands. Although Little Dog would have been running the other way because she doesn't much like lightning and loud noises. The mountain was holy and consecrated to the Lord. And this was to indicate the metaphysical and moral distance between God and man, the children of Israel were were being taught that they were sinners in need of a Savior. This mountain was frightening in the extreme. The whole context is one in which they themselves disobey God and they make the golden calf and in so doing stir up the wrath and anger of God. You see, it was an occasion on which if you stood there, you would have been frightened white as a sheet. You would have trembled and your knees would have knocked. The revelation from Mount Sinai screamed at you that there was bad news and that God was one not to be taken lightly. What a distance between God and fallen man. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews then says, but, in verse 22, everything turns, but you have come to Mount Zion. And our hearts can breathe a sigh of relief. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, Boy, that starts to frighten me a little bit again. In festal gathering. Oh, so they don't have their armor on ready to cut my head off. They're dressed up for the party and for the celebration of the marriage feast of the Lamb. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh, believers, hear that final word of revelation in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Mount of Zion, you see, is the place of salvation and of redemption and of conversion. It's the city of the living God. It's that place that God is going and preparing for us that will come down from heaven And we will live forevermore with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will sit one day in your 
New Jerusalem, new heavens and new earth condo, and you will look out over the horizon, and there you will see the angels, and there you will see other believers, and there you will see your mediator, the God-man who died that you might live. Oh, it will be a joyful and blessed place to dwell. Mount Sinai is a bit scary, but Mount Zion will be a place of great rejoicing forevermore as we live with Him in glory. So what should your Christian life be like now? What are we then to do? If that's what we've come from, and this is what we're going through now, a race, and if we're headed to that fulfillment, even in the city of Jerusalem to come. Well, he says in verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Here, we're being admonished not to abandon the faith, not to defect from the people of God, but to listen to the Lord, to obey His command, to seek after Christ, to look to Him and keep running the race. There would be or should be no earthly shadow remaining after all is done. For you see, he speaks in verse 26 of His voice shaking the earth in the past, but now shaking earth and heavens. And and that which is earthly will disappear, but that which cannot be shaken will remain. The heavenly blessings forevermore will be ours. And so there will be no more tear. There will be no more sorrow. There will no be no more strife between brothers and sisters in the faith. There will be only a heaven reality, heavenly reality remaining. And the joy and peace and love of God will fill our souls and lives. And we will be with Him whom we love forevermore. And so now, our response should be gratitude and devotion. Gratitude to a God who has sent His Son for sinners like us. Gratitude to a God who indeed has sent His Son to run the race before us and prepare the way. Gratitude to God for the salvation of our souls and hope of heaven that you now enjoy if you trust in Christ. And also, we should respond with right devotion. And thus let us offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. It's not that the God of the Old Testament is one thing and the God of the New Testament is another. It's not there was all this fire and brimstone stuff in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament it's all sweetness and light. The author smashed that idea when he began describing to you what life is like now for you running the race. Rather, our Heavenly Father we are reminded, is a consuming fire who doesn't trifle with sin, but rather judges it and deals with it and works in our lives to His glory. You see, it's only by the grace of God, who is a consuming fire, that you can look to Jesus 
And you can think of the Father and you can listen to the Spirit. Keep your eye on Him today. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we do ask for your blessing upon us as we look to the Savior. Help us to listen to the voice of the Spirit and and indeed to think on all the ways in our lives now in which the Father displays His love, both in blessings that are sweet and easy and in discipline that is hard and sure. And we will give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.